You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together today, and we ask that in your mercies you would open our hearts and our minds to perceive the truth of what it is you have to teach us. Give us, Lord, an understanding of our city, and I pray, Lord, that you'll give us a common heart for it, a clarity of purpose and call. I pray for our time together this morning that you would guide us, and we give it to you in thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have Bibles sort of near you um, or on your phone, because I know people have Bibles on their phone now, I want to look at Nehemiah just a bit with you this morning before I turn it over to, to David. We're again in the second week of a six-week series, and the first two weeks of our time together is given to the overarching topic of understanding our city. That's, that's what we're doing, and trying to think about the ways in which Nehemiah may lay some groundwork for us, at least at the principal level, about um, how we live in the city, engage the city, pray for the city. Um, I've tossed up here our class purpose again that um, David so helpfully put together, um, and I'm not going to read it, but I'll leave it there as sort of background a bit. And let me put the car just slightly in reverse about Nehemiah, um, because Nehemiah uh, the, uh, was um, a, an interesting figure that found himself in the middle of a rather complex situation that required an enormous amount of wisdom and leadership and energy to work through a situation that really by all accounts on the ground was a seemingly impossible task. It, it, it was bigger than anything that Nehemiah can pull off, could have pulled off. Now, I don't, I don't want to um, steal the thunder from later in our series, but Nehemiah pulls off the rebuilding of the wall in about 56 days. It's, it's, it's a remarkable feat of what he accomplished. But on the front end, in the first two chapters where we are, where we were last week and in this week, we get a sense of the enormity of the task that Nehemiah actually faced. So you'll remember Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes, who really was probably, about, I think, the third Persian ruler that was on the throne at this point in time in Persia on the far side of the fall of the Babylonian kingdom. Um, and the, the Assyrians were a, were a big moment in, in ancient Near Eastern history. The Babylonians, in many ways, were kind of a blip on the screen, about 70, 80 years of, of global dominance, at least within that particular part of the, the Near Eastern world. And then the Persians came onto the scene and brought another kind of uh, global dominance that lasted for hundreds of years. And the Persians had a very different foreign policy than did um, the Babylonians and the Syrians before them. The Persians released what was called the Edict of Cyrus, um, which uh, part of that Edict of Cyrus is found on, on, a, on, a, on a, the, the cylinder of Cyrus, which is on display, I think, in either the, I think it's at the British Museum. So a remarkable moment in foreign policy that encouraged those who were under Persian rule to go back into their communities, into their nations, and rebuild them. Rebuild their religious identity, their cultural identity, all underneath the sort of Persian governance and dominance, but yet they were called in what we might call a kind of confident pluralism underneath 
um, the oversight of King Artaxerxes. So he went and wanted them to live within their particular their particular cultural and religious identity. Hanani, the brother of Nehemiah, had come to him there in Persia. He gave him a report about the structure of the city and its fallenness, and and, and Nehemiah was beside himself with with grief. And and one can imagine, I mean, there's a a lot of historical dot connecting that's hard to do with the book of Nehemiah, but you might be surprised to find that Ezra, uh, the scribe and the priest, had already been back into Jerusalem with that original group that was released by Cyrus about probably 13, 14, maybe even as much as 16 years earlier, Ezra had gone back, religious reforms were beginning, the temple was beginning to be rebuilt, but the, the governmental, political, and, um, and militarily, the, the structure of the city walls itself had not, had not been addressed. And so um, Nehemiah was, was, um, was, was beside himself with grief because he recognized they were vulnerable. All that to say, Nehemiah makes his way back to the city of Jerusalem with of the permission and all of the resources of the king of Persia. It's kind of remarkable. He's carrying papers with him. He has a whole group of people with him to go and do this sort of work. And he gets onto the scene. And this is where chapter 2 comes into play. And I wanted to read this to you this morning. Uh, This is Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. So religious reforms had begun, but the structure and the infrastructure of the city itself had still been left in in ruin. So here's Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. I gave them the king's letters. The king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So this was quite a scene that Nehemiah was creating on his way back to Judah. But when, and I want you to remember these names, because there are problems along the way. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come, and I want you to remember this phrase here, to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So you, the, these figures, Sanballat and Tobiah, are going to become perennial problems for Nehemiah and the elders of Jerusalem who are given to rebuilding the walls. They, they, will, they will make their, their appearance known. They will, they will make um, verbal threats before we even get, get out of chapter 2. And they will actually make physical threats before the book is over. So Sanballat and Tobiah, um, they, are, they are problems, opposition that Nehemiah immediately faces as he um, enters into the call that God has placed um, into, his particular, into his particular life. And so this happens in verse 11. So, so I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days. Now that's important. This is all having to do with our, our particular discussion last week and today. Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. I think that's an important point. Think about that. I'm a heart for the city, but had never been to Jerusalem. He arrives in Jerusalem and he spends three days there um, observing watching, um, not saying much, not revealing to the elders of the city or Sanballat and Tobiah why he was even there with all of these, with all of this entourage from the Persian government. He was there to observe. And then he does this rather shrewdly, verse 12, then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, why in the night? Again, he's living under the cover of darkness, doesn't want anything, there's something surreptitious kind of going on here clandestine. I told no one what my God 
had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. I, there was no animal with me except for the one on which I rode. And then I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. Now, let's, I don't want to get lost on these gates. The, 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 the dung gate's not, not where you went to hang out. I mean, I think you can kind of get an idea of what the, what the purpose of the dung gate was. Um, and, if you, and if you think about um, Jerusalem, um, the old city, I'm using my hand here. here here's my PowerPoint. Um, a hand, um, and, and you're and you're looking at the northern part of the city, the southern part, the eastern part of the city, and then the western part. The eastern part of the city is facing Mount Olives, with the Kidron Valley running right along its side. Then you have underneath, and, and who, who's been there before? Some of you've been there. You, you, you'll remember that once you start moving from the Temple Mount south into what's called Old Jerusalem you begin to work really on the backside of Mount Zion. You're, you're going down into the valley. The old city of Jerusalem, where David probably ruled and reigned, for example, is moving itself down off of that mountain in toward the valley. And so this was the major entry point of the city for those that would come. And that's exactly where um, uh, Nehemiah goes. He goes to that southern part there right, ne- right on the corner of the Kidron Valley and the Valley of Hinnom, um, right there. And, and, he, and he observes what's happened to these gates. And it's fascinating what you have here. So I went um, to, the, to the Dung Gate. I inspected the walls of Jerusalem. They were broken down. Its gates had been destroyed by fire. So this goes all the way back to the destruction of the city under Nebuchadnezzar some 70 plus years ago. And it's still in rubble and ruin. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Now, some questions about where these gates are or what these actual fountains and pools are. It's possible, if not probable, that we're talking about here Hezekiah's tunnel. You have a spring of water that leads to Hezekiah's tunnel that then led to what at least Nehemiah is calling the king's pool, we might refer to that pool as the Pool of Siloam. Fascinating, right? Um, for those of you who've been to Israel after 2005, they discovered that Pool of Siloam. You, you, when you're visiting the old part of Jerusalem, you can see the pool that's being talked about here. It was a natural spring that, that made its way into this pool. And that was, again, and, and this, is, this is a big problem in Israel. It's a central problem for many cities to think through. Where do we get water, water sources? This is the primary source of water, which again provided the infrastructure of this city to survive. And this is where he went to observe. No animal was able to get through. I went on to the king's pool. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, the rest of the people who were there to work. And then he comes back, and I, this is, I'll use this to kind of hand over to David. Then I said to them, I've done my observation, then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. So you have a, a, a basically a kind of building block narrative here from what, how Nehemiah moves into the situation that's before him. 
Number one, there's a burden that's placed on his heart that the Lord himself places on his heart. Number two, there's a call to action where he moves toward the city itself with, with all of the complexity of what that movement entails. Number three, he observes the brokenness of the city. He sees the city for what it is, can identify its brokenness because of observing it, and then he moves toward the people and calls them to collective action um, to, to move toward that brokenness and to fill in and to repair the breaches. I'm not going to read the rest of it because I want to hand this over to David. The first thing that happens after Nehemiah says these things to the leaders of Jerusalem is opposition. Opposition from those who are there, Sambal and Tobiah. Um, they come in and they level opposition against them. So there's challenges that meet him immediately in the midst of his recognition of the brokenness of his city. Okay, I'll turn it over now to Again, I am David Fleming. If I don't know you or you don't know me, um, I'm a parishioner here like you and a, a native of Birmingham. I work in economic development here in the city. And um, I do look familiar, maybe it's because you've seen me singing in the choir. So um, I'm uh, very grateful to Mark for his uh, biblical um, context of this. We started last week. Is this still too hot? Should I turn this off? Is it good? Okay. Um, we started with the history of the city because we're trying to observe and learn from our city and our past who we are today so that we can, as a, as a community of faith, really make some, you know, prayerfully consider how do we, as a church that's been here from the very beginning, um, how do we impact the city uh, today? How do we help bring about the shalom of the city uh, from our perspective? If you didn't hear, I got through 1945 last week, from 1871 to 1945. And so if you want to go back and hear the play-by-play, do that. I am going to give you a, just a quick overview. I, I propose that our city, really, these four things created our city. Necessity, we needed, a, after the Civil War, the South and Alabama needed a new economic driver. There was opportunity here because of the, the natural resources that could lead to an industrial city. Um, and then those things had to be met with vision and ambition. With vision to actually... Uh, take those opportunities and do something with them and the ambition and dr that drove uh, many of the city's founders to try to, to pull this together. And so a city was born, uh, a city that grew uh, very quickly. Uh, and over that upstart period where we were really just you know, driving um, to create this city and, 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 and be, one, be the greatest industrial city of the South, um, I propose that out of this era from 1871 to 1910, uh, these things sort of got embedded in our character. And that's, you know, I can tell you facts and figures, but I want us to think about what are the things that really give us our community character. We gain the sense that we should be great. This is a great city and it should be great. But we have this tendency to fracture uh, and it's there from the very beginning. Uh, but we have resilience because there were many times the city should have just not existed, you know, and died during this period. But race, it becomes a, an issue from the very beginning, um, economically, culturally, um, beginning to sort of uh, separate out and use uh, race uh, sometimes to advantage for some. But we are also sensitive to outside economic control because this era ends uh, with the uh, largest uh, economic driver of the city, TCI, Tennessee Coal and Iron, being bought by U.S. Steel. And we become essentially controlled largely by Pittsburgh at that point. Um, then we moved into the maturing era, which is where the, we get to begin to see the city that we really, you know, kind of recognize today. A lot of the, the buildings and the, 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 the economy was, was, was producing tall buildings and density and great things like the Alabama Theater and the Pazits. 
So we began to sort of mature a lot of our ways, and particularly around how we, um, you know, sort of kept the city divided. Uh, we talked about how the zoning maps of the city and everything, all the rules and laws began to sort of um, harden during this time, especially as it related to separation of, of white and black. Um, the Great Depression uh, came and did a number on us. Uh, because we had been one of the great cities of the South, and all of a sudden we were the hardest hit city in America, declared by Franklin Roosevelt. And, um, and that created um, some things that we needed to, to know about ourselves. Economic diversification is good, don't have all your eggs in one basket. Um, also, uh, we had, because of depression, a lot of federal money coming in, but we didn't want them tell, uh, uh, telling us what to do. We just want to take their money and build some things, but you know, not deal with any of the more social things that were people like Eleanor Roosevelt and others were pointing out. And I want to hit this a little bit because I didn't hit this hard enough last week. Business and civic obligation goes deep. Uh, we really end up with a community, even way back then, that business leadership is expected to not just be business leadership, but also help raise money for charity and do a whole lot of things that uh, and we'll talk about more in future weeks. But that becomes a real character of Birmingham. But obviously the confidence is shaken. You know, we end up with um, uh, a city that was on the rise, all of a sudden hit very hard. And so we jump into the change area and a lot of change comes. Uh, I love this picture because you, many of you recognize this as the terminal station. This was Birmingham's railroad station, great railroad station. Um, it was built in 1909. And you know, the whole nation was changing after World War II. Uh, we were, um, uh, people were, had been pent up because of the depression and then the war and the rationing and all of a sudden now people could buy cars, they could buy houses in the suburbs, they could start to get better education. And the irony of this picture to me is this grand temple of travel, as it was called, um, uh, and known, is sort of surrounded by cars. And you can tell it's sort of 1950s, and it's like that they're choking out the, the railroad station, which is what happens. By 1969, this building is gone. And, uh, but the suburbs grow, especially around with the, the automobile growth. Eastwood Mall, uh, you know, this symbolizes the growth of the suburbs to me, this picture, because Eastwood Mall became the first enclosed mall in the southeast when it was built in, in Birmingham. So instead of having to walk around downtown Birmingham in the heat and the, the smoke and the soot to, to go shopping, you could do it in air conditioning. You know, it was a revolution. And it was um, uh, something that drove the suburbs. Now we, um, in 1960, Birmingham City really reached its peak of population, about 325,000 people. Uh, but the suburbs were growing, and uh, they were beginning to, you know, by you know, the 20s we had Homewood and Mountain Brook. By 1955 you had Vesavia Hills, 1968 you had Hoover, you had all this growth of people moving out, beginning to move out from the city for a whole host of reasons, um, not the least of which is uh, some of the racial things, but also because of, I mean, it was, again, it was dirty. It was, a, it was an industrial city, it was a working class city, and people were wanting to, uh, different house styles, everything was happening. So um, it, people began uh, to leave. But again, that economic change that was needed. This is a, a picture of the beginnings of UAB. You know, we, it was the, the critical decision uh, of uh, the university system to put its medical college here in Birmingham, which led to UAB uh, becoming what it is today. Um, but uh, not only did this begin to help diversify or, or paint a new path forward for, for, our, uh, for our city, uh, you also began to see growth of things like construction, banking, insurance, all these things kind of born out of the old industrial economy. 
all these people were you know, needing to do all this engineering. These are real strengths in Birmingham uh, today that kind of go back to this um, uh, move for you know, diversification. But ultimately, despite some of this economic change, the greatest change that really we had to confront was what was really our, you know, our greatest collective sin, and that of, uh, of segregation and, and really keeping separate and very unequal uh, our society. And um, you know, Birmingham's segregation was tough. It was enforced very, very intentionally by the city government, but also it, it benefited some of the industrial and business interests as well. So, um, Fred Shuttlesworth, you see picture here, the local pastor who invited Dr. Martin Luther King to come to Birmingham in order to um, uh, have uh, participate in civil disobedience and have a protest to sort of highlight this. King. Was re really needed a confrontation. He was at this point in the civil rights movement. Uh, Montgomery bus boycott was a, you know, a while back, and there was, he was really needing something to sort of get people's attention on civil rights again. And uh, Fred Shuttlesworth said, "Well, you come to Birmingham, you're going to get it." And so he did. He came to Birmingham, and in 1963, uh, we uh, became a city with where there was a lot of protests um, centered around Kelly Ingram Park and. The downtown and sit-ins, and, and of course, this was met with the resistance uh, that uh, King and Shuttlesworth and others wanted. Uh, and uh, King was thrown in jail, and at times, um, uh, you know, there were. Th this is what was interesting. I mean, you think of this as a very like King versus you know Bull Connor kind of situation, but there was so much going on, and there were many, even sort of moderate to progressive forces trying to, to move throughout the city and trying to sort of calm things down and. And, and change um, what was going on. Uh, very famously, though, there was a letter penned by several clergy members called A Call to Unity, um, which included also Bishop Carpenter, whose portrait stands is in our, in our church, um, uh, that said, didn't say that this, what they wanted was wrong, uh, but said that this methodology of going out to get it was not right. This civil disobedience was not right. This was going to be negative for us. <clears throat> and um, these outside folks are coming in doing this, and we need to work the legislative process. Well, King, this is when he, in response, wrote the very famous, and one, one of the most famous pieces of literature to come out of the Civil Rights uh, Movement, the letter from Birmingham Jail. Uh, and his response to that was, this is not a time for moderation. This is, this, uh, unjust laws should be stood against and should not be obeyed. And uh, also made the principle that lay down the principle that uh, you know injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, and those very famous things that you probably you're familiar with. Um, but ultimately, the um, uh, Bull Connor and the city government came along and um, dispersed uh, the protesters, and the world saw this. You know, this was the painful thing for Birmingham. Uh, besides just the pain of dealing with the social consequences of it, um, uh, everybody in the world began to see Birmingham for this. Uh, and um, ultimately this culminated very tragically in September of 1963 with the bombing at 16th Street Baptist Church. Um, and four little girls' lives were taken as they were um, preparing uh, for Sunday school class. And um, all of this certainly galvanized the nation for the movement towards civil rights and recognizing that we've got problems that we've got to solve here. And um, Birmingham became synonymous with it and the battleground for it. And um, 
I will say that uh, I want to forecast a little bit and tell you that I, I will tell you I recognize that it is not right for me as a as a, as a white almost 50 year old man to be speaking about the black experience in Birmingham and in a few weeks I have invited uh, some friends who are good friends uh, who are um, lay leaders at 16th Street Baptist Church to come and join me here and we're going to talk a little bit about you know what is how do African Americans really view Birmingham uh, because it's different from the way probably most of us do so um, uh, I, I hope that you'll come back to that I think that's going to be a wonderful discussion some very good friends uh, and we're going to have and, and Christians who are going to be able to help us think through this not only as black and white but as Christians um, but that produced change change in the government uh, on the one side you see the three members of the Birmingham City Commission who had run the city in a very segregated uh, fashion um, this, those moderates those, the civic community I was talking about created a change in the government which brought about got rid of those three and brought about a mayor and council form of government which um, hopefully was intended to sort of change the way the city was run and governed. And these three handsome gentlemen are the, the mayors that come after that. Uh, this is Albert Batwell and George Siebels and Mayor Van, and they're all trying to lead the city in this post-1963 environment and, um, and, and you know, re, kind of rebuild and reorganize the city. And they each bring different things to the table. Ultimately, Van was a very sort of progressive mayor that had to support a lot of the black community who, um, because again, many white people were leaving the city of Birmingham at this point, and uh, African-American power was growing, uh, but he was sort of a progressive. He had, he, um, had um, led in that direction. But during this time, there were so many att attempts and good efforts to try to sort of, you know, get us back on track as a city with, with a future not known for a city um, uh, of, of the past. At our centennial of 1971, I think under Mayor Siebels and others, probably some of you in this room really worked on getting uh, us designated an all-American city so we could celebrate, you know, something positive. There was always certainly promotion going on and then plans to do things to sort of change physically the city, like, and I put the picture of the one up here, the Birmingham Green, the cooperative effort. In 1972, uh, the business community raised money to install all the landscaping that we see on 20th Street today, which is Birmingham's main street. It used to just look like this, just any old street, but they made it a linear park, which was a commitment back to downtown, a commitment to the, to the city, and trying to make it look um, more attractive and appealing. So these things were were going on by that civic community. But in 1979, um, there was a, an instance of police brutality. Uh, Benita Carter was a 20-year-old um, African-American woman in the Kingston neighborhood. Um, uh, she was at uh, Jerry's Convenience Store in Kingston um, uh, when the, there was an argument breaking out between someone she knew and the clerk, of the, and, and she offered to move the car of the person that she knew and then Officer Sands from the police department comes and shoots her uh, in the car. And um, then ultimately uh, the, the police department uh, ruled that this was um, justifiable. And Mayor Van backed the police department. Well, the African-American community was outraged at this because certainly Officer Sands was known to have had several instances of, of extreme use of force in his record. And um, it just highlighted the fact that there was this um, different way of treating African Americans. Uh, and and uh, the resulting outrage led to a lot of protests, very tense time again. 
ultimately the result was the election of Richard Arrington as the mayor of the city, the first African-American. He had been on the city council. Uh, he was a Miles College biology professor. He had, uh, his time on the city council, he had uh, championed a lot of the issues of you know, police brutality and that sort of thing. Uh, but he became mayor in 1979, which was a, a tremendous uh, change for Birmingham. And um, he quickly consolidated power and ultimately became uh, the most you know, powerful uh, city uh, politician, uh, probably, perhaps in the history of the city. Um, uh, for, and for the next 20 years, he was the mayor of Birmingham. And of course, he represented the rise of African-American power while, um, and I remember growing up in this time, I'll be honest, I remember you know, thinking, you know, uh, I tended to see whites, uh, suburbans, suburbanites sort of hating Arrington. Either hated him or you loved him. You loved him because he represented the rise of, of, of power for people that had not had power for so long, or you hated him because he represented the same thing. He just was, you know, a different side of it. Um, but he, over the time, uh, developed a working relationship with the business community uh, and that sort of thing, and, and, and led the city during a significant transition. The early 1980s, economically, was we were kind of down in the dumps, um, and uh, we were not really growing that much. But um, he modernized a lot of the planning of the city and, and really attempted to do uh, a lot of things. But uh, it was an incredible transition time for the city. Um, I wanted to, as I close out this era, mention a couple of things. One, um, uh, the, the civic community was still active. In 1970, there was a major effort uh, to uh, consolidate the city again. You may remember 1910, there was this big consolidation of all these neighborhoods like Ensley and Woodlawn into the city. And uh, as during this era, Nashville had consolidated with their county, Jacksonville, Florida had consolidated with their county, Charlotte, North Carolina had done a lot of consolidation, and there was an effort here that ultimately uh, did not work out. But many young business leaders that were on the sort of progressive side Richard Pazitz, Jim White, others like that were really trying to push this. Um, but then jump ahead, some of you may remember this, uh, maps uh, in 1998. Uh, this was an attempt to do what Oklahoma City had done and put together this list of things that the city, if, if the community raised taxes a little bit, could invest in all this development that was, the centerpiece was a multi-purpose stadium the Dome Stadium, they called it, but it also would have funded Alabama Lyric Theater renovation, more transit, um, a whole host of issues. Um, and uh, again, the business community stepped up to get behind this. Gene Hallman, Larry Lee Mack, Donald Hess, um, <coughs> a number of others, but it was met by opposition uh, led by City Councilor Jimmy Blake at the time, which tapped into sort of a fear of, of it and fear of these people. And ultimately, there was a huge turnout to vote, but it lost 57%. Um, voted against it. And if you looked at the, the kinds of uh, 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 who voted, well, who voted you know, for it was largely in the city and then maybe some of the closer-in suburbs, but then the more um, suburb, largely suburban ring voted against it. So it was sort of a city versus suburb thing, really, if you look at it. And then sometimes history gives us these great ironic moments and I love those like when you know on July the 4th 1826 Jeff Thomas Jefferson and um, John Adams died I mean like two of the founding fathers died on Independence Day together it's, it, it, you know 1999 we had seen the end of Arrington's term it seemed really the end of the industrial era and poor Vulcan who had been the symbol of our city um, was uh, tired and needed to come down and be recast because he was falling apart 
and it's, it's kind of ironic to me that he came down from the mountaintop at that point almost to the symbol that, you know, that Birmingham was done. Now Vulcan's back on the mountain, which is great, uh, but um, it really is one of those moments of irony to me. So from this era, what got into our DNA? We had obviously damaged image globally, economic changing of the guard, we had industrial interest versus commerce interest sometimes in this tug of war about the future, but civic leadership really matters, but it's tough on them. If you step out, you get kind of brutalized a little bit about all those movements that I've talked about. It was tough on you. That's not okay. Uh, we still love the fracture a good bit. Uh, and then we plan well, but implement poorly, uh, I think is, is one of those things that we learned. I'm going to, we go to the turn of the century, and um, I'm going to really fly through this to get to the end. But um, uh, we come to, I always think we come to 2000, and I think there's this sort of general question, even though we don't say it out loud, really, who are we as a city at this point? Um, at 2000, we had several bank headquarters in downtown Birmingham. We had four major bank headquarters in downtown Birmingham, which were great. Uh, but again, keeping that sort of TCI-US deal mode, you know, bank consolidations, uh, people's, you know, things happen in the economy by 2010, there's just one, you know, uh, that is technically really still located in downtown Birmingham. Um, but what's going on? This working class city is starting to change. Uh, we see around the uh, turn of the 21st century, the Pepper Place Farmers Market come along, which begins to really make us think differently about our connections with food and, um, uh, and the community. Sidewalk Film Festival. This is the, this working class steel town has a film festival? What? And we still do, right? This is, these, these things begin to happen. And then of course food. I mean, you know, Frank had been around, Frank's did, you know, since the 1980s, but all the people coming through his restaurant began to kind of go out and change the food scene in Birmingham. And so we're, we're kind of a, a city that's moving away from this old working class character to something else. We still continue to plan, like this 2004 master plan for downtown Birmingham, but look what's on it. The idea of a railroad park had been around for a while, but it officially made it into this planning document and said, you need to do this. It will make a difference. And the community pulled it off. We did it. We've created this great civic space, award-winning civic space downtown, which has transformed our downtown. And, and from 2010, when it started uh, over the last decade, it has, it has brought so many people and interest back into our city center. And at a future time, we're going to talk a little bit more about downtown specifically, which is our neighborhood for this church. So come back for, for that discussion and really what's going on in it. But uh, I think we as a city begin to learn, you know, we can enjoy ourselves as a city. We don't have to go to the beach or go to the lake. You know, we're a city that can start to actually do things that are interesting and fun, like bike share, uh, which was, I remember when we started bike share, nobody ride bikes in downtown Birmingham. Well, now everybody wants to ride bikes in downtown Birmingham. Um, and then along comes perhaps the answer for our economy uh, is that we have the potential for innovation and really growing innovation companies. UAB, SRI, Innovation Depot, they're these great assets that could really build uh, an innovative company future. Of course, Shift, as we know, started as a great success story, but it's already been bought and it's owned by somebody else, uh, Target. But you could feel the momentum changing in the last decade. You could feel it. And you could start to see it showing up in uh, news uh, uh, formats around the country. Uh, people are starting to look at Birmingham differently uh, in the last decade. And I think that's good for us because we need to start looking at ourselves a little differently. And uh, seeing these great things and, and believing in these things 
uh, about us and about ourselves. So today, Jefferson County, at the heart of all this, is, is still um, a, a significant uh, county. We've got 36 municipal governments, though, in Jefferson County uh, that uh, is, is a challenge. And if you look at how Birmingham stacks up, these are actually 2018 numbers, but um, the Birmingham Metro still by far dwarfs uh, any other metro in Alabama. You have to stick Mobile, uh, the Montgomery Metro, and the sort of Huntsville Metro together to basically to, to then get over the population of, of, of Metro Birmingham. We're incredibly important for Alabama uh, still. Uh, even though we are now no longer Birmingham itself as a city is no longer the largest city in Birmingham as we learned this summer with the, uh, some challenges we still have before us about our core city but we still are the driver for Birmingham. And uh, so ultimately, what do we learn? Watch out for the bigger fish. They're out there, they're gonna come along and maybe take some of our fish from us. And so we've always gotta be uh, cognizant of that and building new economy. But we learn we can enjoy our city. We are a city we can enjoy being in and we don't have to go somewhere else. A reascendancy of downtown and maybe a future in innovation. We've still got a lot to, to sort of cling to. I'm going to close this out with going back to these. Um, uh, I think just like in 1871, I think these four things are still true for Birmingham today for us. There is necessity. There's a necessity because our state needs us, our community needs us, we're all invested here. There's a necessity to think about our future and who we are. There is opportunity. There's clearly opportunity. Ultimately, uh, what's the vision and ambition that's going to uh, take that on and, and do something with it. So with that, I am going to um, uh, close out our story of Birmingham history. Um, and uh, I would love, we, we're out of time, and so I think I'm going to have to not take questions this time, but we've got many weeks, we've got a few more weeks to go, and other things to talk about uh, coming forward. Again, as our goal is to really prayerfully consider how we as a, as a church can uh, be a part of the future of Birmingham. I'm going to close out with a prayer uh, from the Book of Common Prayer, the Prayer for Cities. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, in your word you have given us a vision of that holy city to which the nations of the world bring their glory. Behold and visit, we pray, the cities of the earth, especially the city of Birmingham. Renew the ties of mutual regard which form our civic life. Send us honest and able leaders. Enable us to eliminate poverty, prejudice, and oppression, that peace may prevail with righteousness and justice with order, and that men and women from different cultures and with different talents may find with one another the fulfillment of their humanity through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.